Well, good morning and welcome to Southridge. My name is Stu Emenheiser and I serve as one of the elders here. Uh, also with my wife, Marcy, we co-lead a couple small group uh, with Nicole and Trey Bressler. And I also serve in Upstreet with our third, fourth, and fifth graders. So if you're here long enough, you'll probably wear a lot of different hats. Um, but we're grateful you came today for week two of our message. And before we get started, um, this is actually my first time on the stage in the new building. And it's funny, when you get up here, there's kind of a different perspective than when you're sitting in the crowd. You're looking at the lights and the speakers. Um, and it reminds me, years ago, uh, when Marcy and I were going to our last church up in Fairfax County with uh, same place as Jeff and Jenny, uh, same as Jesse and Jen, the way their auditorium works is it's roughly three stories tall. And they have a balcony for additional seating. And when the service is started, what they do is they close the doors to the main auditorium and kind of filter everybody upstairs to the balcony. And one Sunday, Marcy and I were running late. We went up to the balcony. And as we're sitting there, kind of getting to the top and looking where to sit, we went to the far side where nobody really was. We sat down. We went through worship, announcements, and the pastor has started giving his message. Um, Jeff wasn't preaching that week, but we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, one of these large lights detaches from the ceiling and comes crashing down into the row behind us, right? And normally, if you drop your keys or knock a water bottle over, a couple people look, everybody turn. The pastor actually yelled up to the balcony to make sure that we were doing okay, and um, it was kind of embarrassing, but um, we dodged a real bullet there. So um, keep an eye overhead. Make sure those lights stay affixed during the service. Um, but we were really grateful uh, that we dodged that bullet, um, although the lawsuit would have been really profitable. So anyway, uh, before we get into talking about Jesus today, and we will do that, if you're new, if you're watching online or first time here, there's sort of been a topic that we didn't expect this summer, and they've been beards. Right? And as four of the gentlemen who have been speaking to fill in for Jeff this summer, um, three of us have beards. Uh, two of us, not me, have pretty large, prodigious beards. And um, they seem to be making a lot of comments. There was teaching done about beards. Um, I keep mine pretty short. Uh, one time I did grow my beard out pretty long, and my mom told me I looked like a rabbi. So uh, I trimmed it up, and I decided I would never do that again. Um, I do have a picture of me with a long beard. Um, I'm going to show it, but please don't let this leave the room. Um, can we show that picture real quick? Yeah. Okay. So obviously that's not me, but imagine that's what I would have looked like. Um, so that's why I keep the beard short, and I think everybody's happily, uh, happy, especially Marcy. But last week we kicked off a series we called Well-Versed. Um, and Scott taught us about finding new hope in old songs. And the series centers around these timeless truths and wisdom. And these timeless truths from God were as true last year as they were thousands of years ago. And we're going to go all the way back to the book of Psalms. If you grew up in church, I know you're familiar with that book. But it's actually a collection, not just of songs, but also of prayers and poems that were written sung, and spoken by the people of ancient Israel. And these psalms were written over hundreds and hundreds of years. But at some point during their exile to Babylon, 
the Babylonians came in, they captured the Israelites, took them out of Jerusalem, out of their homeland, and took them back to the Babylonian Empire. And at some point during that exile, they decided that they were going to collect all these poems, prayers, songs, and we're going to put them together in an orderly way. And this would allow God's people to be reminded about their journey with God. In it are some very real, raw, and honest conversations with God. And we kicked off last week talking about the Psalms of Lament. A third of the Psalms are made up of lament psalms, which were written honestly to God about their struggle, their trouble, and their hardship. And as God's people, these are beneficial for us as we see that God desires our full heart, which means at times being real, raw, and honest before him. Today we're going to look at the opposite of a lament psalm, and we'll look at the psalm of praise. This means that instead of last week, when Scott was being a Debbie Downer, this week will be more like Pollyanna, very positive. So we begin in Psalm 95, verse 1. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Now the word extol was used to describe a battle cry. So it's lifting up a shout with a song. Um, You all probably know this because you've seen movies, but um, George Washington used music to communicate and lift morale for his soldiers. Um, Personally, I think playing a flute on the battlefield is one of the worst jobs possible, Um, although I guess you could fix a bayonet to it. Um, But anyway, music was used to communicate and lift morale. Um, Now, many years ago in high school and college, I played lacrosse. And one of my favorite things to do on the field, besides scoring a goal, happened actually after our team failed on the offensive end. And after a teammate took a shot and the goalie made a save, he would yell clear. And clear was his message to his defense that they now control the ball and they need to move up the field to get the ball to offense. And what would happen is all of the defensemen would start turning their shoulders and looking over towards the goalie and running upfield. Now what I like to do was sit in front of midfield and sort of survey the field. Um, sort of a free safety. Think Ronnie Lott, maybe Troy Palomalu, Bobby Boucher, depending on your preference. And I would bait the goalie into thinking that his defenseman was open. And as I'm sitting there, I had a battle cry in my head. I'm not kidding. This is the song that was going through my head as I was waiting. All right, and I know I know a lot of you are laughing. Most of you are laughing at me, but the point is I use this song to get me pumped up. And I would be playing it in my head, and when the goalie released the ball, I would time my run. And unlike football, where the ball has to be touching the receiver's hands or just past them, the ball only had to be within five yards of a defender in lacrosse. 
And as that ball would get close, I would step up and I would lower my shoulder and take them off their feet. Um, Coincidentally, this is how I discipline your children in Upstreet. It seems to work pretty well. Uh, No, I'm kidding. So please feel comfortable sending them back to me uh, next week when I'm over there. Um, But my point is, the song was used as a battle cry. Many of you know who've played sports, a big hit can change the momentum of a game. It's football, hockey, um, rugby, lacrosse. And so that was my battle cry. But in this situation, David, as a strong military leader, was using the battle cry analogy with God because music was uplifting and is used to boost our faith and to communicate with God and others. David's fired up about his faith in God. He's excited about his faith because his faith isn't boring. And the truth is, is if our Christian faith is boring, we're not doing it right. Our relationship is with the creator of the universe, the one who formed us in the womb, the one who made the sun stand still, the one who parted the waters, and the one who gave up his one and only son to take our death so that we can be forgiven and have life. Our God isn't boring, which means our faith shouldn't be boring. Following Jesus isn't a laid-back, subtle thing. It's a lifestyle worth celebrating. The verses go on. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. David is doing everything he can to describe how big and how powerful God is. David is using the biggest language he can use to find how to describe God, who is all-powerful. Then it says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Due to God's depth, we need to humble ourselves. In other words, since God is so big, we need to make ourselves smaller when we approach him. We really have to remove our pride. And David makes this personal. Before becoming an elite soldier and a king, David was a shepherd. He understood that God was like a shepherd with his people. He cared and corrected them. And that personal attention required a response of worship from him and us. Now, for all of us in the room here, watching online, regardless of how long you've been a follower of Jesus, or even if if you're not a follower of Jesus, we know that it's easy to be singing songs about how great and powerful God is and then leave church and quickly get wrapped around the axle of all the stressful things that we have going on in our lives. We don't want to forget everything we sang about and everything we learned about the minute we walk out the door. Um, what I do to decompress is I love watching prank videos or fail videos. There's something about someone falling on their face off of a skateboard or falling off a ladder that makes me really happy. Um, I know that's probably not the right attitude, but it makes me feel better about my life when I see other people going through these pranks or some of these situations they put themselves in. And one of the ones that pops up periodically is usually at a party. 
And if you set the scene, someone's recording, there's usually a large cake in the middle of the camera scene. There's decorations on a wall, there's people gathered around, they may be wearing hats, they may be singing, there's candles, everybody's excited. And then there's one person with a knife. And he or she goes to cut the cake, and all it was underneath the icing was a giant balloon. And the cake pops, everything implodes, and it's worthless. And I think there's a dynamic here, is that when we sing and we worship and we talk about how great God is, we have this wonderful cake or this party or this feast, and the minute we walk out the door and forget that, it's like all that cake was made of is a giant balloon and our faith implodes. We're not living out what we're singing about. Worshiping God is more for us than it is for him because God doesn't need his ego stroked by his created things who are often overtaken by pride. And there's a dynamic at play, and it's really a timeless truth. It's something that even ancient people of Israel experienced. People are really good at being critical. We are really being good at critical, and it seems like people have gotten even better at being critical since 2020. It used to be that if you wanted to criticize something, you had to have someone physically in the room to talk to, to pick up the phone, or to write a letter and put it in the mail. Now it's just as simple as sending a text or jumping on social media and sending a passive-aggressive post. Some of us have received those messages or emails, and it's so easy today that we never have to leave the comfort of our couch to criticize someone or something. Now, we've all gotten good at being critical. I'm critical. I have my own insecurities, and one of the ways I make myself feel better is I criticize other people in my mind. If I can tear them down in my head, it makes me feel better and deal with my own insecurities. It's an issue that I have that I've got to work on. We're all good at being critical. And whether it's the last few years, months, for being honest, it seems like the older we get, the more critical we get, right? You never see the young person and go, that's a really bitter young person. Usually it's a bitter old man or an angry old man, right? The older we get, the more bitter, angry, or critical we become. But here's something to think about. If we're all getting better at being critical, what do we gain by being critical? Something comes to mind and what happens? You start that inner dialogue where you're critiquing that thing or complaining about that thing, yet nothing is changing. You're just getting yourself more upset. If you talk to someone else and you're critiquing something and they're on the same side of the issue with you, all that's happening is you're both getting fired up. No one's changing their mind and really nothing's getting accomplished. And even when you talk to someone on the other side of the issue that you're passionate about, it usually doesn't change their mind, right? Usually you end up not accomplishing anything and you even potentially make that relationship worse by being critical. Now, some of you may push back and say, hey, our job requires us to be critical. An inspector, a manager, a controller, or some kind of curator of new ideas. 
But the issue comes down to critical thinking, which strengthens an idea or mission or supports a person. Critical thinking strengthens. Being critical weakens. Critical thinking is data or information driven. Being critical is emotionally driven. Critical thinking empathizes. Being critical disregards. Critical thinking honors. Being critical condemns. So critical thinking creates a conversation because it starts with a question. How can we improve this? What can we do better? If you were in my shoes, what would you tell me? Critical thinking requires work and effort to continue the conversation. Being critical doesn't require any work or effort, which leaves no room for a conversation. But here's what we all need to pay attention to, and this is so important. We carry what we're critical of. We carry what we're critical of. Let's say we see something in the news or we hear something from our friends or there's a situation at work and it doesn't sit right with us. We disagree with how it was done or how it was handled, what was said. And that's a normal response. It's a good response to have an opinion and to have perspective of a situation. Yet in that moment, if we're not careful, we'll choose to begin to walk down that road of being critical of that thing or complaining of that thing. And when we do, we begin to carry what we're critical of. In the book, The Body Keeps the Score, Bessel van der Kolk spends many years studying the effects trauma has on the body long after any physical or emotional harm was done. And what his research shows is that the body can become sick and stay sick by our mindset. Our mind controls a lot, not all, but a lot of our physical health. Think about it. Our insides don't have any eyeballs. They rely on our actual eyeballs, right? Our nose, our mouth, our skin, our ears to process information, send it to the brain, and the brain delivers messages to the inside of our body on how to function. When we're stressed or anxious or angry, it raises our cortisol levels, which you may know is the fight or flight response. This was designed to allow us to be alert and get through a dangerous situation, like a caveman who's about to defend himself versus a saber-toothed tiger. It's designed to raise our level of intensity for short periods of time. But when stress or anxiety sticks with us and our cortisol stays high, it weakens our immune system and it limits your body, its ability to fight sickness. Now, this may blow your mind. Did you know that many of us actually carry dormant cancer cells in our body? And the way we eat, think, rest, exercise can all have an effect on whether those cancer cells activate later in life. Now, please understand me. If you or someone you know has currently cancer or, is, or has gone through it, please understand I'm not saying that your mindset or stress 
caused cancer. What I'm trying to explain is that how you think can affect your health. Your body carries those feelings. Um, This is hard to believe, but let's run through a quick um, situation that might give you some perspective. Now, you don't have to close your eyes. If you do, this might make the situation go a little better, processing the info. But imagine after church, you all go home, and you're in your kitchen, and you open up your refrigerator, and you pull out a fresh lemon. You put that lemon on a plate or a cutting board. You take a nice serrated knife, and you cut that lemon in half. You see some of the juices leak out onto the plate, and you pick up half a lemon. You take a giant bite of that lemon and squeeze the rest of your juice in your mouth. Now, did anybody else have that sour taste and reaction in their mouth when I mentioned that story? Why is that? You didn't actually bite into a lemon, but your brain told your body to prepare for that sensation. And I know the first couple times when I was preparing the message, I could feel that sour taste, right? Physiologically, your body carries what goes into your mind. And oftentimes, we're critical over something we have no control over. We're getting worked up about something that we probably can't change. And this affects our relationship with God as he will be drowned out by the weight that you carry from a critical mindset or a critical spirit. Notice what David writes. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. David is switching gears here and speaking for God. These are God's words to his people. God is warning his people from having hard hearts like their ancestors before them. This is a normal consequence of being critical, right? You lose empathy and just become bitter. It's a reference to their ancestors who complained about Moses and to Moses. See, they were critical of Moses, and in an indirect way, they were critical of God, who delivered them with some miraculous signs and wonders that are still talked about today. In fact, their critical spirit controlled them so much that they had lived in Egypt as a people, as slaves for over 400 years, and they still wanted to go back to Egypt. Scripture goes on, For 40 years I was angry with that generation, I said. They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The phrase, my rest, was the promised land, which flowed with milk and honey in a place where they could enjoy God. But their critical spirit allowed them to miss out on the promised land, a full life enjoying God and his blessings. This would have been their rest from hundreds of years of being slaves. Today we're in a different covenant, a different arrangement with God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is called the new covenant, but it's the same result for us as the Mosaic Covenant. That's the covenant made with Moses and the people. Being critical rarely leads to joy. And joy is one of the ways Paul, who wrote 
much of the New Testament describes the fruit of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so when we drop into a critical mindset, it prevents us from experiencing, uh, excuse me, experiencing the fruit of the Spirit. See, genuine gratitude leads to joy, not the other way around. When we live with a critical spirit or a critical mindset, it's hard to get to joy from there. And have you ever noticed how hard it is to be bitter or angry while you're also expressing genuine gratitude? When your heart is genuinely grateful for something, it's hard to complain about that very same thing at the same time. And we have a choice to make in life when we bump up against stuff we don't agree with, we don't like, we have an opinion on, or forget all that we sang about here. And we feel like we're about to fall apart. We have a choice to make. Are we going to be critical or are we going to be grateful? And when you allow yourself to focus on the greatness of God, like David writes about, other things begin to seem smaller. Your gratitude towards God, your praise, your worship of Him will lower the temperature of those conversations you're in. They'll open the eyes, your eyes, at the thing we're quarreling about or struggling over. Not that it isn't a big deal or important, but just that our God is bigger, that we trust our God, and that we're thankful that we're part of His team. And when that temperature begins to lower, you won't miss out on joy. Instead of being critical, be grateful. When you're tempted to panic, be grateful instead. Of course, this is a lot easier said than done. But one of the things that makes life easier is building a habit. And building a habit of being grateful to God. In fact, that's actually the purpose of Psalms. The reason why they wanted these accounts of people praying to God, singing to God, and having an honest conversation with Him was to build a habit into the ancient Israelites of gratitude towards God and worship towards Him. John Eldridge writes about micro-moments, which are little things you can do throughout the day to connect you with God. It's posturing yourself to experience God. The key is to look for these micro-moments. I had a couple today when I was on my lunch break. I got out of the office and just took a walk around town, and I took some time to just be thankful for my health, for my friends, for my family, for my children, for my job, and just taking that time to be grateful and be so thankful for what God's done for me helped me to remove that tunnel vision on all the stress I had in the office that day. All of us have opportunities for micro-moments. It's just whether or not we take advantage of them. So two things I want you to be thinking about this week. What's causing you to be critical? And how can you become a critical thinker? Let's pray. God, we are thankful and grateful to be here today, to have the freedom to be here, healthy enough to be here. 
You've been so good to us, God, and the worship that we sing is so true. You're bigger than any problem that we have, and we're so grateful to be a part of your team and to have that salvation. Lord, for any of us that are struggling, that have big issues and big problems, help them to change that perspective. Help us all and help them to not be critical, but to also have gratitude and to trust that God's going to be with you and to be with us in those situations. Help us to honor you this week and be an encouragement to other people. Help us to be a critical thinker instead of being critical. We love you, God, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.